today as we continue in week two of the story of justice where we've been following the narrative arc of scripture asking questions about what is this saying about our world about what it means to be human about the issues of justice when the first year of marriage my wife Erin and I got into uh, quite a few arguments, we'll just call them arguments, that came out of the two of us learned how to live in our little happily ever after together. One of the repeated arguments, conversations, we'll put it, that my wife Erin and I had was around doing the dishes. So most nights, Erin uh, is uh, kind of the, the early bird, she goes to bed, I'm the night owl, and so normally I would uh, be tasked with doing the dishes before I went to bed and I was always totally okay with doing the dishes and over that first year of marriage we continually would have fights first thing in the morning as I woke up came down into the kitchen and Aaron is giving me the silent treatment the cold shoulder because I didn't do the dishes is what she would tell me. We would walk over to the sink and I would show her, no dishes here. I would open up the dishwasher. All the dishes are in there and ready to come out. I don't understand what you mean. And we would continue to go on. Well, it's not what it, and it finally took a few months for the two of us to realize that what we meant when we said doing the dishes were two completely, not completely, but two different things. For me, doing the dishes was the actual act of doing the dishes. And for Erin, just the way that she was raised and, and the, the language of doing the dishes was not just the actual doing of the dishes, but kind of the resetting of the kitchen and even the prepping for uh, coffee in the morning. And so here's the thing. Aaron and I both committed to one another and committed to the dishes being done and having a home where everything was working well. We're constantly butting heads because we were using the same phrase, doing the dishes, to talk about two different things. Michael Sandel, he's a Harvard law professor, wrote a popular level book called Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do? And in it, he argues that the current anger and confusion in our moral discourse nationally about justice, how we should treat one another and what the law should be, how society should be organized, all of this confusion was coming out of the fact that we have different groups meaning different things in the midst of that conversation, like Aaron and I meant doing the dishes. What he does in his book is he breaks down three predominant thoughts about justice, three different ways of conceiving that word that then we bring to the conversation. The first is what he identifies as the maximizing welfare perspective of justice. This understands any act of justice as being about producing the greatest amount of happiness for the greatest amount of people, reducing the greatest amount of suffering for the greatest amount of people. And so what is right in this perspective flows from what most of the people want. The problem with the maximizing welfare view is what if everyone's wrong? What if they want the wrong thing? And, and in, in this view, what if the, the uh, moral minority is actually the one who's right? In the situation of Martin Luther King Jr., he pointed to as in a maximizing welfare view of justice, he's not calling for justice, but he's actually doing an unjust thing because he's going against what the, the, the majority wants. The second view he identifies as respecting freedom, that justice is liberty, and in particular, individual liberty. That, that justice is what creates the greatest amount of respect for the rights and freedoms of each individual to live how they want. It's the idea of don't tread on me, don't tell me what to do. The problem with this is what happens when there's a pandemic and people don't want to wear masks? Is it an unjust thing to call people to, to put a little bit of cloth on their face when they go outside? In the respecting freedom view, it's difficult for them to perceive this as being an issue of justice as opposed to injustice. And then finally, he talks about the promoting virtue, where in this perspective, justice is a vision that is given to a people, a portrait of what humans ought to behave like. It's kind of a moral compass that on a certain level, the virtue and integrity all come together of how a just society will push people to become like this. The issue is, what if people don't all accept that portrait? You see, if you put a liberal socialist, a libertarian, or a conservative, and a conservative, all three of them in a room, it's like a bad joke. If you have a, a liberal socialist, a libertarian, a conservative walk into a bar, they are going to be talking about justice using that word, but often unconsciously using that word justice in a different way. And they are going to be frustrated with one another constantly because you don't see, to me, it's a black and white justice issue. And for them, it may be a black and white justice issue as well, but they're perceiving justice as two different things. Now, as it pertains to us today, 
we need to be aware of how we lean in that three-part divide because we tend to come to the Bible with one of those particular views or maybe a mix of or one of two of them. And so the problem is is that we bring this into our moment, that we read the Bible. And so again, within our nation, you add the differences is not only do we have three different views, but three different views that are all trying to use the Bible to defend their perspective of what right justice should be. I was reading a cultural commentator earlier this week who remarked that the level of division within this nation has not been this acute since the Civil War. It's coming out of three different portraits of what is right and wrong, and particularly as it pertains to the American church, all three of us utilizing scripture to try to argue with one another. And and while the biblical definition taps into each of these three views, it doesn't neatly fit any of those categories that we want it to. And so what it does is it takes great discipline for you and me to set aside those preconceived options, to be aware of them so that we might set them aside, to listen and read and study and reflect and then bring into context what we find within the scriptures. It takes great discipline to do that work. It is nowhere as easy as reposting a story on Instagram. It's a deep work that requires patience and wisdom and community and humility. And so this week, when we're about to go, as much of this series may feel at times, I will unapologetically lean in the direction of teaching more than preaching. And what I mean by that is more of trying to give us a worldview than to light our hearts on fire. But I I hope to do both. But the reality is, is that I become deeply convinced that we need to do the deep work, that exhortation in justice can only come out of an understanding of justice that's biblically based rather than us just all continuing in our pre-constructed views. So deep breath, that's where we're going today as we continue. So let's pray and then let's get into week, um, the, next, the next part of the story uh, in the story of justice. Well, Father, we thank you for uh, your word and we thank you for your work and that you are bringing together not a people who are all alike and think the same way, but a people that you deeply love and are, are working to have a deep unity uh, through the work of your son, Jesus, the uniting work of, of your Holy Spirit. And as we sit underneath this word, you bring us together. I pray that you would unify us around your, your scriptures. I pray that you would unify um, our, our internet um, all across the west side right now, that there would be consistency, um, that we might be able to reflect on this well together. And so God, guide us, speak. I pray that you would help me to be silent on matters of my own opinion and help me uh, to to really point to what uh, your text is bringing out of us. In your name we pray. Amen. So last week we began the story of justice by looking at the foundation of justice in Genesis 1 through chapter 11 where we watched this good ideal world that God had created with uh, human beings equal in his presence forming and filling the world that as they fell from that ideal in their distrust of God, they led, it led to a fractured forming and filling of the world that ends in the city of Babel. And so if we were to stop right there, the story would be bleak. It would not be a comedy, but a tragedy. And what happens there in chapter 11, Babel gets scattered all over the world, but God chooses one of those little scattered people for himself. In Genesis chapter 12, we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families, and that's, that's the, the Hebrew word for races or, or ethnic groups, the tribes of the earth shall be blessed. So, In the midst of Babel, this big bad city that gets scattered, God picks one of those little bad people and he comes to them, Abram, hey you, here's the deal. I want you to go to the land I'm going to show you. I want you to trust me. And if you do, if you do, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your, your family great into a nation, one that blesses the entire world. This is a really, really good deal for Abraham or for Abram at this point. But how is this going to happen? How is this blessing going to come to all the world? Well, a couple chapters later, Genesis 18, verse 19, 
uh, God comes to Abraham, and he's talking about Abraham with himself. Um, it's an incredible little story uh, where God comes uh, in, the, in the, uh, uh, the, this, this physical embodiment of three people. And it's, it's, a, it's a weird story. We don't need enough time. But so God speaks to himself talking about Abraham, and he says this, For I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, notice this, by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. What, he has, what did he promise Abraham? The great nation, the great name, blessings to the end of the earth, to every single tribe. How does that come out? What is the reason that he's been tro- chosen? So that he may keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. There it is, a family of justice. This is the first use of these two words together, righteousness and justice, in the Bible. They are some of the biggest words in all of Scripture, used hundreds of times individually. And over a hundred times, they are used in this little couplet of righteousness and justice in one together. The, the, it's a, a hendiadis. It's one concept that comes from pairing of two words. This happens hundred, uh, over a hundred times throughout the Old Testament. And so what I want to do is let's separate the words so that we might understand the concept as it's coming together. So the first is this word righteousness. Righteousness. It's the Hebrew word tzedakah. Its biblical root comes from the idea of something standard, something as it should be. If you were to walk into your bathroom scale this morning and step on it and see a weight that reflected what your body actually was, the, the book of Proverbs would refer to that scale as being a tzedakah, a righteous scale, giving righteous measures. So we perceive of it being this weird Bible thing, and throughout the scriptures, it actually has a far more normal use. It's something that's as it should be. It is doing what it's meant to do. Similarly, in the Psalms, they talk about a good path being one that's righteous. <laughs> Think about this, a righteous sidewalk, a tzedakah. It's a, it's a sidewalk, it's a path that is as it should be. Uh, in our evening walks that, that our family does uh, on a regular basis, um, in a stroller now with our little eight-week-old Arlo, uh, trying to get him to fall asleep as we go on the walk, I have become hyper-aware of the sidewalks that are tzedakah, that is that they are righteous, they are even and level, and, and those that are rasha, those that are wicked, those that have roots that have grown up underneath it. There's deep inclines, and people have tried to fix it, but they've just made it worse, and the whole stroller you're trying to run through, I've become deeply aware of sidewalks that are tzedakah, that are as they should be, that are righteous, that are right, and those that are wrong, those that are wicked, those that are not as they should be. And so here's the thing. Righteousness, we are so prone to just make it this Bible word, and we just kind of look right past it. Within the Hebrew scriptures, their understanding of righteousness was just rightness, something that is as it should be. It meets to the standard of what its expectations are. And when that rightness is applied to human beings, it's talking about them conforming to what is right or expected of them. Not in the abstract but in the actual activity of the relationship or the situation. The first use of this word, tzedakah, of righteousness, happens in Genesis 15, 6, about our guy Abram, Abraham here, who, hearing these promises of God about a great name, a great nation, a promised land, blessing all the world, it says that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What's happening here? Is God seeing the, the trust, the faith of Abraham, in the midst of these promises that don't make much sense to him, in the midst of all that's going on in the world, when God sees Abraham displaying that sort of trust, he goes, aha, this is a righteous one. This is a human that's doing what it should, that is as it should be. This is the standard of what humans are meant to do. And this comes after we find throughout Genesis 1 through 11, remember, all of these people consistently showing a pattern of not trusting, of not being what they were meant to be in that trusting relationship with the Lord. So there you go, righteousness, tzedakah. The big idea, it's just right, as it should be. We don't need to over-spiritualize it. It's the thing that is as it should be. The second word that gets paired is that word justice, then it's the Hebrew word mishpat. Now, like justice works in English, mishpat is uh, rooted in the idea of a judicial or legal activity, the idea of giving a law, uh, the, the word rule, that you read, if you read through in a moment, we're going to see some verses that use the word rule or rules. It's the word for mishpat. It's, a, it's the justices. So it has a legal aspect to it of judging, of declaring between what is guilty and what is innocent. But in the widest sense of the word mishpat, it is this. 
to put things right, to intervene in a situation that is oppressive, that is out of control, that is wrong, and fix it, to fix it. It's the idea of doing justice as confronting wrongdoers, but also vindicating and delivering those who have been wronged. It is not just the declaring the guilty, but also pardoning the innocent. Because what is it? That there is a, there's something wrong. There's out of rightness that is here that needs to be set. Now that happens in the courtroom, but throughout the scriptures we find it happening outside of it as well. Justice is what needs to be done in a given situation if people and circumstances are to be restored to conformity with righteousness. Another way of saying this, justice is to put things right. Justice is to put things right. To go back to the sidewalk analogy, justice, if if a righteous sidewalk is one that is level and even and easy to walk on for everyone, justice, as it applies to sidewalks, is the tearing up of the Rasha sidewalk. Tearing up what is dangerous and vulnerable for people, specifically the elderly or children or or the disabled or, or those with strollers that can't get over it. It is justice is the work of tearing up what is rasha, what is wrong, what is wicked, and then the work of laying down a new righteous path. Do you see that justice is both of those works at hand? Now, this leads us to the fundamental question here. If that's righteousness and justice, if righteousness is rightness, it's something that as it should be, and justice is setting something to rightness, who gets to determine what the right is? That we are putting people in things to. If we go back to the beginning with Michael Sandel, is it welfare? Is it freedom? Is it virtue? Do those who have power, whether through their manipulation or through democracy, get to dictate what is right? Is it the oppressed? Who are those that have the authority to dictate what is right that justice then works within? For Abraham and his family, the source of righteousness and justice comes from the Lord as their God, as their covenant partner. Genesis 17, again, God talking to Abraham says, I'm going to give you a promised land. And then he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. And I will bless the world through you. That is my righteousness and justice will bless the world through you. If you remember from last week, your image of God's siren should be kind of spinning up here as a deep comparison between the two. As humans were tasked with forming and filling like God in Genesis 1 and 2, here Abraham is being tasked with justice and righteousness like God. Because we find throughout the scriptures that God is the God of justice and righteousness. The psalmist says that his throne Literally, his throne, when God sits down on the throne, is justice and righteousness. The God is the God of justice. He's the God of righteousness. Psalm 33, Psalm 89, Psalm 97, a repeated thread and framework that runs through. Christian biblical justice flows from a righteousness that is grounded in the character of God as revealed in the word of God and then as fulfilled in the Son of God, Jesus. Now, as a brief aside, this is not to say that secular aims or secular conversations around justice, that is, those that aren't coming from the Word of God, inspired by the character of God, and those that are fulfilled in the Son of God, that secular, that they're wrong, and that we should write them off, or, or their philosophies regarding justice. We actually find that, that because we are created in the image of God, though fractured, we still desire, and at times and regularly do, desire and work for the right thing. That image of God is not completely lost within us. We find this within the fact that as you read through the law that we're going to get into in a moment, that there's laws here in the Old Testament that are perfectly parallel with what's called the Code of Hammurabi. It was written around the time of the Old Testament. It was from Babylon. These pagan guys that worshiped the wrong gods, they had so many levels of injustice within their society, and yet they still got some things right. And so what's interesting is instead of Mis- they just the, the Bible is completely okay with borrowing from the Code of Hammurabi and then baptizing it in the work of God's people, but also rejecting the other aspects that they see as unfruitful and unfaithful to who God is. In the same way, we should not be scared about engaging with the secular philosophies of justice in this moment and even borrowing or taking phrases and ideas from them because the Bible does the same thing with the Code of Hammurabi. And, and with other examples, that's just the, the big one. But the reality is, is that we can take those and we can, we can, we can leave the bathwater. We can acknowledge the image of God coming forward in these movements and yet distinguish ourselves from the fractured 
forming and filling that may happen from those. Because that's ultimately the dangerous side of when we seek to do justice apart from the righteousness is set by God in his word. Is we may get some of it right some of the time, but all of the time it's ultimately going to be fractured. It's not going to be full. It's not going to be complete. And so there we go. Let's keep rolling though. Because the idea is that this is the same question that's postured to Abraham here, to Adam and Eve, to all of us. Will you receive and represent God and who he dictates, what he dictates as right and wrong, as justice and righteousness? Or will you choose that for yourself? Now, here we go. Story, just to, to follow this in. The rest of Genesis there from 12 onward plays out this story from Abraham and Sarah, the cycle between them choosing and trusting right and wrong for themselves or trusting God. And yet in the midst of their silliness and stupidity, God remains faithful to the promises that he made for this this family of justice. This moves into the generations through Isaac and Rebekah of Esau and Jacob of uh, Jacob, his name changed to Israel, and then through his 12 sons, And then Genesis ends with them being in Egypt, not the land that was promised to Abraham. The book of Exodus opens with Israel now being racially oppressed and enslaved and actually a work of genocide that's now started up. And so Israel is crying and groaning out. And Exodus says that God hears their call and he begins to put in motion a plan to redeem them and recover that that family of justice plan. Exodus 6 uh, verse 5 through 8 says, I will redeem you, Israel, with great acts of justice. I will be your God. I will bring you to the promised land. I am going to what I promised to Abraham, that family of justice, that's not gone anywhere. I'm going to make this happen. And notice what God says there. I'm going to redeem you through great acts of justice. I'm going to put this thing right. And that involves judgment on Egypt, but also the redemption for Israel. And so there you go. We got all the plagues that happened, this great act of justice, going through the Red Sea, ultimately getting to Mount Sinai, where uh, Israel and God have the, it's, it's like a wedding ceremony with these wedding vows that come forward and it come, these wedding vows that, that come out as, as commands is how we read them. Where here at Mount Sinai, this wedding ceremony happens where the family that was saved by the justice of God becomes God's family of justice. But the back half of Exodus and Leviticus don't read like romantic wedding vows for us. If you've ever tried to do the Bible in a year, you're making great headway through, you know, there's some genealogies in Genesis, but you kind of skip those days. And then you get to Exodus and you get to the, you know, it's all working. And then you get to Sinai and then we just start reading command after command of do this, thou shalt not this. Then you, what in the world is going on? That's where most of us fall off. And that difficulty continues into the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy and that's, that's where we are today, is those books, the back half of, of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. But remember, before we just dive into looking at the thou's and thou shalt nots, remember, remember, remember that when we open this book, we're dealing with a story that's being told, a story. That year at Mount Sinai was, uh, that back half of Exodus and Leviticus, it's wedding vows, and it's their honeymoon night, but it does not go as it planned. Israel actually cheats on God on the wedding moon night. It doesn't go well. The book of Numbers is this, it's like their honeymoon. It's like a road trip through the wilderness to the promised land, to their dream home. But instead of taking two weeks, it takes 40 years because of the amount of issues that Israel has in their trust of God. They've got to do 40 years of marriage counseling before they can go to their dream home. And then the book of Deuteronomy is like Moses' borderline, uh, border sermon over the people of God before God carries them over the threshold into their dream home, into the promised land. And so over that narrative that I've just told there, this kind of like wedding narrative of God and his people, there's 613 commands that are given. Ten of those are the, the Ten Commandments, but there's within this specifications on how to sacrifice animals, what animals to sacrifice depending on what you did, what type of clothes you're to wear, how to treat your neighbor or the immigrant in the land. What's the purpose of these 613 wedding vows? Moses lays it out multiple times over the course of their wedding night, their honeymoon, and then before they walk into the threshold. One of them comes in that sermon before God carries them over. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 4 through 8 says, uh, this is Moses speaking to the people of Israel, but you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules. That's the word mishpat. I've taught you statutes and justice as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them, do them, 
for they will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear of all these statutes, will say, now surely this is a great nation that is wise and an understanding people. Notice the great nation there connects to the promise that God gave to Abraham. I will make you a great nation. And the nation saying, surely this is a great nation, is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is with us, that is with the family of justice, Israel, whenever we call on him? And what great nation is there and has statutes and justice so righteous as all the law that I set before you today? So what, what's the purpose of all of these 613 commands? The statutes and justice, the law, the, the Torah as it's called, it is a definition of righteousness and justice so that the nations will be blessed. You see, in an age of pagan confusion of what the gods wanted, where you were really worried to make a misstep and then have the God curse you and and not sacrifice the right thing, God's law, what we want to just like skip over, is one of the greatest gifts that you could give if you were a deity trying to help out your people, is to tell them what you want. To tell them what you expect within the relationship and who they are to you and what they can expect and and how this whole thing works out. And so this is why these 613 commands carry and cover everything from uh, the holiness of these people. How they are set apart and different in their family, their sexuality, their dress, their diet, even their farming practices. It applies to their worship, that is their place of worship, their sacrificial system, their priesthood, even the sacred time around how they live their lives with things like Sabbath and Passover, the Day of Atonement, their feasts in the year of Jubilee, and in those 613 is commands of justice, how they are as a people to put things right. The hope is that these pagan nations, as they get to hang out with Israel and they get to know them, is that they might walk on the the, the sidewalks of Israel to see the statutes and laws, to walk on those sidewalks and go, compared to our, your guys' sidewalks are awesome. Who's your sidewalk guy? Who is the God that is guiding you in these righteous ways? Because we want to be a part of it. It's, it's, the idea is it's almost an evangelistic. All the nations coming to worship the true God through Israel's righteousness and justice. This is how the nations will be blessed. Now, the context to keep in mind as we read these 613 commands is, is the purpose of them. They are made for Israel in their time as they've just come out of 400 years of oppression in uh, Egypt, that they are more culturally shaped by Egypt than anything. God is working with what he's got, where they're at, with the surrounding nations, for the sake of bringing all the nations in. And so what that means is these 613 commands are not transcendent commands for all time. God is applying his righteousness, that is his rightness, within the context of Israel among Israel's neighbors in Israel's time. He's moving them in the direction of something. The idea being something similar to like uh, my my three-year-old daughter, Emma. My end goal with her is a self-sustaining adult. And yet what that means in the present time is I let a lot of things go that most self-sustaining adults should be able to do. And I'm holding her to very simple things that hopefully move her in the direction of that, like brushing her teeth at night, finishing her dinner, like looking people in the eyes, not making giant men, like this is the the sort of thing. But there are things right now that I let my daughter get away with because of her age and where she's at, that that when she's 20, when she's 25, she is not, I'm not, that's not going to happen, right? Like I'm not, I'm not, I don't even know. There's so many there with hygiene that we don't even need to get into. Um, The idea though is that there's baby steps that are being taken because I'm I'm a good dad. I know what I'm dealing with here. I'm not expecting unduly from her and that's what's happening within these 613 commands is God is laying out baby steps towards the divine ideal and so they're not transcendent for all time but from our perspective though even though these are baby steps they can still be quite difficult to us particularly around the issues of women and slavery women and slavery now a couple notes on this before we move forward. The first is on the issue of, of women's rights within the law, within the Torah. Um, if you have the, the notes there, you'll see it's underlined. Um, that's a link to an interview with Dr. Sandra Richter with uh, Preston Sprinkle on how the Bible and particularly the laws of these commands are an unprecedented turning point for women's rights in the ancient Near East. Um, and so anybody that wants to, like, we, we, we can sit with kind of a chronological snobbery and look back on these commands and not acknowledge the deep steps, the baby steps, yes, but the steps that they're making within history. 
Similarly, on the issue of slavery, uh, each Sunday we do a Q&A at 4 o'clock. And today I'm going to be taking the first half of that time to address in particular how the law speaks about slavery. Showing, hopefully, the stark differences between how the law treats slavery and what it looked like versus what we see within our own nation's history. What you find is it's just, it, you've got to be there. It's astounding. The law condemns slavery through kidnapping. It gives freedom on the spot for those that are physically assaulted by their masters. It gives capital punishment for masters that kill their slaves. There are reparations in part for the slaves of Israel. It prevents generational slavery through freedom every seven years. So we just have to take that and acknowledge that there's something different here than what we conceive of as slavery here in the States. And so we're going to go through that at four on the Q&A. And so I want to have you there. Please join us. But let's keep working through. The idea is that this incredible wisdom and justice that we're seeing in the law is God's righteousness at work in Israel's time. It's not transcendence. It's baby steps. Now, here we go. Take a deep breath, shake it out a little bit if you need to, because what we need to do is we need to ask the question, how then do we apply this law for us today? What do we do with this book? I'm not an Israelite. I'm not living in the Bronze Age. What do I do with these four books? This this question has led many Christians to want to just, you know, disconnect and unhitch the Old Testament from Christianity, from this, from this movement, because what do we, why, this, this feels like a waste of space if this doesn't mean anything for me. But the reality is that throughout the Bible, various authors in the scriptures understood that the purpose of the law was not eternal commands, but contextual application of God's divine ideal. And that this divine ideal could be discerned through what Psalm 1 invites people into, which is delighting in and meditating on the law of God, meditating on the 613 commands that we might understand what is the divine ideal beneath this all. You can read through the Old Testament. You'll just find people, it's a conversation between the authors of what is the divine ideal. The uh, King David in Psalm 15 narrows down the 613 into just 11. In Isaiah, uh, verse, uh, or chapter 33, verse 15, he narrows it down to six. Micah, the prophet, narrows down the 613 to three. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. The prophet Habakkuk shows up and he summarizes it in one. Live by faith. Amos comes along, summarizes the 613 in one command. Seek God. So what you have here is not contradictions, but rather different ways of distilling what the divine ideal is behind these commands that were given to a particular time to a particular people. And what's interesting is that Jesus himself joins this conversation in Mark chapter 12, where he distills the divine ideal by taking two of the commands from the law, highlighting them and saying, this is the thing that summer, this is the divine ideal. What is it? That you love God with all that you are, coming from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and you love your neighbor as yourself, from Leviticus chapter 9. And so Jesus' summary here doesn't unhitch his work from the law, but he uses it to apply the abstract divine ideal, or what he calls fulfilling the law. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, he does this work. You've heard it say, thou shalt not murder, pulling from the Ten Commandments. But then he says, I tell you, anyone who has anger in their heart for their brother is guilty of murder. What's Jesus doing there? He's he's looking at the law, the 613 commands, and he's saying the divine ideal beneath that is not simply the act of murder, but the, the hatred in the heart. Which for Jesus, the divine ideal beneath that is that you love your neighbor as yourself. He does the same thing with adultery. It's not just the physical act of adultery. It is the objectification of another. Lust is what he calls. That underneath lust is the not loving your neighbor as yourself as you turn them into an object for your own pleasure, whether physical or in your own mind. You see, Jesus is always at work throughout the Sermon on the Mount and his teachings of giving us handholds for what it means to love God with all that we are and love our neighbor as ourselves. And he points to the law. He points to what God gave to Moses and Israel. And the thing is, is that Jesus too understood the law as baby steps. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, there's some scribes and Pharisees who are arguing over the issues of divorce within the law. Well, what about this? Well, the, the, the Moses gave us this law. Well, what about, and they're arguing over it. And what Jesus says is, actually the whole reason that Moses gave any element 
of laws about divorce was because of your hardness of heart. But then he goes on to say, but from the beginning it was not so. What is he saying? That those laws are baby steps. They are not the divine ideal, but they are movements along, given to work people in the right direction. So Jesus, David, Micah, they're all in this conversation, understanding the law as revealing the divine ideal of God's righteousness and justice. That is to love God, to love others, to seek God, to live by faith. You can fill it out. And then again, we're just you guys, I'm just I want I want you to see that this is clearly the way the Bible talks about it. Even Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 18, he does this strange thing. In the middle of his letter, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4. He says, "You shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain." It's like this you know, bronze age command. What? Don't muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. And then he takes that verse and he applies it to why churches should pay their pastors. <laughs> Which is like, did Paul hit his head on the way in? Like, he's just like, so you don't put a mask on an ox. And um, that's why your pastor needs insurance. And you guys got to help. Like, what is he doing here? What, what the idea is, what, what's Paul doing? He's showing a reflection on the divine ideal beneath the command. Is that the one who works, whether an ox or a pastor, should receive from the benefits of the work that they're doing. See, so it's, it's, it, it feels weird to us, but it's just it's a, it's a Psalm 1 delighting and meditating on the commands, seeing that these are not ancient, archaic things, though they are. They reveal an application of righteousness and justice in a particular time, and by meditating on them, we can actually bring through this divine ideal and then apply that within our time. And so the invitation of the Bible is not to reject the law, but to meditate, delight, and discern God's divine ideal through reading in community. What the, 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 uh, Paul refers to as the law of the Spirit, this divine ideal, the New Testament teachings of Jesus and the apostles. It's the community that we're reading in. So as we read through the laws and we're confused, we say, does Paul or Jesus or Peter, do they speak to this? We read within the community of church history. What has the church regularly seen within these laws as being the law of the Spirit behind it? And then even beyond that, we read as a community with one another, as collective. What are you seeing here? And what is this pulling out of us in our obedience to Jesus as we are now the family of justice? So here's the thing. Some of you, we just like set up how to read Old Testament law. The reason why is I, I am so overwhelmed with the lack of biblical literacy within American uh, Christianity, with Christianity in general. But well, we'll, I'm an American, so I know this one better. Within American evangelicalism, that we don't know how to rightly divide in the word of truth. We don't know how to read this book. We don't know what to do with the law. And so we write it off. We go about our, our day following and loving Jesus, but we don't know at all what it means to truly love our neighbor as ourselves, which is what the law helps us think through. And so I've just gone through this because we need that framework shift so that we appreciate what's going on here and so that we can actually do some of that work together here. Because that's what we're going to do for the remainder of our time. A few more minutes. I just want to go through some of the laws of the, of the Torah and, and meditate on the divine ideal beneath them and how we might apply those today, specifically those that are talking about the issue of justice. So in the law's treatment of justice, there are two primary categories that emerge within the law, within those 613 commands, and it is this. Those are, um, there are commands of what you could call retributive justice and commands of restorative justice. And both of these expand our understanding of justice, what it looks like to put things right through examining particular situations and circumstances that would have been common in Israel's time. So if you guys read through um, Leviticus 19, you saw a handful of elements of retributive justice. Using the sidewalk analogy here, retributive justice is when you find the rasha sidewalk, the crooked, the broken, the torn up sidewalk, that you tear it up. You tear up the roots. You're cutting down the overgrowth so that, that it's not here to trip anybody anymore. Leviticus 19 and then in Deuteronomy 16, we find... God commands Israel, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you. According to your tribes, they shall judge the people with righteous justice. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, 
and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land, that's the, the promised land that the Lord your God is giving you. So what's the divine ideal underneath this command? Everything that's going on here, what is it? God's desire for righteous judgment to be done by his people. Righteous justice that's not partial. That's not picking who's on my side or who's on this side or who's got something in it for me or who gave me something and so now I owe them righteous justice. So the divine ideal applied within our days, it calls for you and me to examine partiality in our own hearts, our own prejudices where we build off of the people that not only just look like us but act like us. So often within little communities of faith like our church, we have this partiality that happens with people that dress like I do and drink the coffee that I do and act like I do and think like I do. And what is its partiality at work? It's what James applies the divine ideal in his letter to condemn is partiality within the church. He uses these commands to go after that. Even more than that, it calls for even having impartiality within the way that we pastor and the way we care for our people. But as we apply this and think through the fact that we do not live in Israel, and like in the New Testament, we don't live in Rome, we live in a democratic republic, it calls for us just to consider our civic responsibilities as it applies to things like policing and laws and leadership on both local and national levels, and the financial bribes and power-protecting partiality that so often get in the way of righteous justice. And so the thing is, we have to enter that conversation from one of saying through, what is this calling out of us? And what does it look like to have impartial justice that we, at one hand, aren't just here to keep going and what is going, but also we're not looking to get caught up in the swept emotions of something. But we're looking to deal with impartiality about the issues at hand. You can simply, if you don't, if you believe, I mean, maybe you don't think I'm on anything here and you think I'm just pulling this out. Of, you simply have to contrast the elements and variables around the death of Breonna Taylor and Roger Stone's sentence being commuted to acknowledge that there's clearly partiality and perversion of justice. And what this is calling us to is, as Christians is not just to look to our own hearts and in our own communities, but being a part of a democratic republic is we, we have civic responsibilities to consider what our commitment to the righteousness of God brings in these conversations. So there's retributive justice. There's the, that's, that's the heavy one. <laughs> Next is restorative justice. So to go to the sidewalk analogy, if, if retributive justice is tearing it up, restorative is now paving a righteous path, one that is wide and straight and level. I mean, it's like, the stro it's like gel when you're rolling with the stroller. The baby's sleeping. It's great. Nine out of ten of the laws about justice in the Torah are restorative rather than retributive. Think about this. All of these commands, there's 613. I didn't do the numbers on which ones are, are justice comparatively with all of them. A lot of them are justice. But out of those justice ones, one, one out of ten is about retributive justice. The other nine are all concerned with restorative justice. Now, what does this reveal about God's heart if the law reveals God's heart and his character? The God of Israel, the God represented and given to us in the work of Jesus, is one that is motivated by restorative justice. That is the setting right of things. Now, within those 9 out of 10 commands, the sweeping majority of those 90%, the sweeping majority, are concerned with the treatment of oppressed people groups. Particularly in Israel's time, it was the poor, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan, and slaves. And so the idea is that in God's setting down of a new sidewalk, his primary attention is not on it working for the able-bodied majority that just walk over it all the time, but the elderly, small children and disabled, and those with strollers, those of us that are more prone to get caught up, to trip, where little imbalances cause big issues for us that they wouldn't cause for others. You see, the law reveals God's preferential attention to the oppressed, and this does not contradict his commitment to partiality. Rather, it reveals God's perspective that in this world, lower classes are not only disproportionately vulnerable to injustice, but disproportionately the actual victims of injustice. Throughout human history, injustice is not equally distributed. And because injustice is not equally distributed, in order for there to be justice, God's people are called to give preferential treatment to the lower, more vulnerable classes, because that truly is what shows partiality is one that acknowledges when impartiality is there. An example of this is in Leviticus chapter 19, 9 through 10, where it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, 
Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Just before that it says, you shall be holy as I am holy. You see, the idea is that landowners and farmers were not to gather all that they could from their crops for themselves. They were to leave behind what could be understood as a good amount of their crops for the poor and the sojourner, for them to be able to harvest and find their own sustenance. And so what's the divine ideal beneath this? What's generosity? In an age where we don't farm, but we largely receive a monetary harvest, we are called not to store up for ourselves, but to leave much available to those in need. This can come from simply financially giving to those in need, like Jesus commands us in the Sermon on the Mount. But additionally, we should work to find ways where those in need in our midst are not only fed and cared for, but actually empowered within their humanity to work like everyone else for their sustenance. Not just charity, but justice, setting people aright, where they're able to work and enjoy it. Some of you that are business owners, what would it look like for you instead of you working harder than you should to get more than you need, to make hires, to bring people on, to distribute that work evenly with those that are in need? What might it look like? See, within restorative commands, though, we find a subset of what you could call preventative justice. Uh, So restorative justice, and then like two and a half is this idea of preventative justice. The idea of holding injustice at bay. As you pave your sidewalk, you are considering the long-term implications, planning for the worst so that you can care for the vulnerable best. A couple examples of this. Exodus chapter 22, verse 25 says, If you lend money to any of my people with you that are poor, you shall not be like a money lender, and you shall not exact interest from them. So a common practice back then and back now is a regular loaning to those that are poor but with a predatory interest rate. This command prevents the practice and preying on of the poor who apart from that loan would starve. They need it. They are not in a place to think through interest rates, but the predatory aspects of it then catch them up where they cannot get out of that death. God's ideal for his people, is that they would generously loan to those in need so that they might be able to pick themselves up and not to exact an interest rate. Additionally, the divine ideal behind this has been seen within churches throughout this country and the world who provide interest-free loans for people in their church and in their community, helping create programs to help them get out of debt and even challenging the predatory loan practices in their city through their voice and even their vote. You see, the divine ideal, this, is, this has more than just not doing interest, but when we see what God's heart is there, it leads us in a law of the Spirit rather than the Word that erupts into something that transforms communities. It's just, it's insane. We can go on all day. One more. Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. Here's a fun one. It says this, When you build a new house, you know, like everybody here in L.A. does all the time, when you build a new house and you shall make a parapet, that is a, a fence or a low wall around your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So what does this commit? You know, you build your house back in the day, and, and normally the roof would serve kind of like our porch, right? And what is, God, God is saying, hey, when you guys do that, make sure you build a little fence, a little border around it, just to make sure. Why? That you don't get guilt of blood on your house. The idea is that someone would fall and get hurt or that someone would die. And so there's this weird little command here. And so what in the world is going on here? Just some questions. Does everyone fall off roofs? Like as soon as people go up there, they're just like falling off? No. Is it even super common for people to fall off the roofs? Not really. But this command reveals God's ideal for his people as having a very, very high view of life and the protection of others, specifically the most vulnerable as it pertains to the rooftop, which would be children, the elderly, sleepwalkers, and the clumsy. You see, this calls for reflection on little ways that we can, we can have dignity for life and safety of other image bearers. And, and, it, and it pertains to everything, to, to, to actual sidewalks, all the way to the, how we drive our cars and obeying tra- like traffic laws. It has implications on what we think about, even things like building codes or firearms. There's all these layers here that the law calls for us to think through, not just rooftops, but preventing and and the dignity of life and the loss of that or or hurt. This also has deep implications on this little piece of cloth that most of you have probably by 
the uh, side of your door. Like, here's the reality. If God calls Israel to spend time and their money to build a little rooftop thing that, that, that if you're most of the people are able-bodied, I'm not planning on falling off the roof anytime, but God says, I don't care. It's my command for you because I am convicted or I am a God of, of justice and righteousness. You prevent the loss of life. If God can command them to do that on their rooftops, I'm just saying, we can socially distance with the divine ideal of preserving life of others. So, Man, I could go on all day of just applying these and, and doing what Psalm 1 calls us to do, meditating and delighting on these commands of retributive, restorative, preventative justice, reflecting on the law's role in our lives as a tutor in righteousness, a shadow of God's character, a revelation of theology, and a portrait of God's love and wisdom. But Moses, as we close, Moses gave an additional purpose of what these laws did. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 31 Verse 26 and 27 says, uh, Moses says this. So now, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. Notice what he says. That there it may be for you, excuse me, that it may be there for a witness against you. A witness against you. And then Moses says, for I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. See, at the end of Deuteronomy, this whole like story that's been developing, Moses is convinced, you guys are going to drop the ball. I know the human condition. I know how hard-hearted and rebellious and stubborn you are. And so guess what? This law that you guys have now, it's going into the, t- into the tabernacle, and it's going to be a witness against you, a prosecuting attorney against you, so that the divine ideal that's displayed within the law may show you just how unrighteous and unjust you are kind of a weird place to end, but Moses doesn't stop there. He holds out hope for what he calls a future act of justice done by God for the sake of his people, where God would, like he did in the Exodus in Egypt, set his people right, not just leading them out of slavery, but actually to make them righteous, to make them as they should be, so that they may live within his divine ideal. Romans chapter 10 verse 4 reveals the entire work of of this law, where it says the goal at which the law aims is the Messiah Jesus, who offers righteousness to everyone who trusts. Like Abraham trusted God and it was counted as righteous, anyone who trusts in Jesus, Romans tells us, the Apostle Paul acknowledges, that anyone that comes to Jesus in trust to acknowledge that their sense of right and wrong has not led to justice and goodness and love and wisdom and rightness and their need for someone to come and tear up what they have been unable to do to lay down a new path for them, anyone who does that, trusts in Jesus. God has enacted retributive justice on the cross of Jesus. In Jesus' death, Jesus allowed his body to bear the retribution of God, the curse of God for our injustice, where he, like the wicked sidewalk, was lifted up and broken. Similarly, God enacted restorative justice through Jesus' resurrection and the sending of his spirit, where for those who trust him, he paves the path of righteousness within our hearts, leading into acts of justice within their lives, and through the spirit, they endeavor to live within God's divine ideal. You see, this is, this is what the whole thing is moving us forward, is so that, na- that, that the law first acts as a prosecuting attorney so that we might come to our deep need of Jesus. And then after Jesus works righteousness within us, we come back to the law to find what it means to be his people. And let us not forget God's promise to Abraham that in that work of justice, God was working to create not a bunch of little individuals, but a family of justice one that in a community was committed to justice and righteousness toward one another, and then out of that, out into the world. Let's pray.